Father in heaven, we want to thank you right now. It's our privilege to open your word. It's our privilege to be learners at the feet of Jesus, to understand the message, the last revelation that you want us to give to the world. Father, as we pause for this moment, we're asking for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. We cannot move forward without the impartation of that third person of the Godhead. We pray that you will lead and guide us as you promised to do. Teach us and lead us into all truth. That no man needs to teach us, but that we can have that anointing so that we can know that what we hear is true, that your word is sure, and that we can walk in the light of that word through your power and your grace. Do this for us now, we pray. Cleanse me, speak through me. Allow each one of us to be open, to understand what you want to share with us, we ask. And again, we do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was at home this last, oh, two weeks ago, I planted potatoes. It was the end of July, and I had to do it. I had to do it because for weeks I had been working on planting potatoes. I had a tiller. And the tiller had a missing part, and I spent a lot of time and effort and a little bit of money finding a part for the tiller so the tiller could work so I could till the ground. I couldn't do it with a hand tiller. This was an attachment to a tractor, and so I finally got the ground tilled in late July. I went to the seed and feed place, and they had some old wrinkled up seed potatoes, and they were just about giving them away. So I said, ah, a couple dollars, that's not, you know, nothing uh, scary to invest. So I went ahead and got them. I planted them. It was really late. I watered them, watered them, watered them. And before I left, there were green sprouts coming up. Now, I don't know (laughs) if I'm going to get potatoes yet. I don't know if it was too late. But I think, I believe, and I prayed earnestly over those, those potatoes, I believe that God is going to bless. It's late for us. It's late for us. God has, over the years, given to this church a powerful message, an incredible message, an incredible insight that no other church has. It's it's described in Revelation 14, verse 6, as the everlasting gospel. It's very late. We have generation after generation neglected, not just to to share the message, but to understand it ourselves. There are people today who are saying, I never knew that the third angel's message was all about righteousness by faith. I didn't understand that. I've heard that while I've been here at ASI. I thought it would be good for us to go back to basics. When we talk about evangelism, what are we talking about? I like the understanding that is brought to us when you look up the word itself. In your outline, right there in the marginal reference, there's a definition for evangelism. It means, number one, a bringer of what? Good tidings. A bringer of good tidings, an evangelist. It was also, definition number two, the name that was given to the New Testament heralds of salvation through Christ who were not apostles. The word itself is defined as someone who brings good news. Someone who heralds the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's what evangelism is. It's all about heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. I was nervous and somewhat unwilling to travel to Pakistan in 1997. I got a call from a conference president who had worked in Pakistan, and he asked me if I'd be willing to go there. I told him initially, no, but I'll pray about it. Now, today, Pakistan is very scary, but this was before 9-11, and I was still nervous. 140 million people 
96% of them are Muslims, and it's against the law in that country for a Christian to proselytize. And if a Muslim becomes a Christian, they die. When I went over there, a young girl, a Christian girl, had been taken to court on trial because she had witnessed to a friend of hers who was a Muslim, and that friend had become a Christian, and her parents killed her. That was their duty under the law. And now they were trying the Christian girl for her death, the death the parents had to, 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 to do in order to be in harmony with the law of the land, but one that they felt that Christian girl was responsible for. So I was nervous. And as I was traveling to Pakistan, I thought, what am I going to preach in a Muslim country? Because they told me, they said, we're going to have loudspeakers. We're going to be on this compound, Adventist compound. There's a church of 50 people there. But the people, the Muslims are going to be listening. Because even though it's against the law for them to actually come to the meetings or become Christians, they're very interested. And they want to hear. So we're going to have the speakers loud and you can preach and just preach to them. So I did. I was just preaching. But I thought, what should I preach? And the verses that God brought to me over and over again were right there in John chapter 12. I believe that these two verses, John 12, 30 and 31. Well, let's see. 31 and 32. No, 30 and 31. 30 and 31. And I got the wrong reference on the outline. I put Revelation 12. You'll see why as we go through the series here. But John 12, 30 and 31. Something very powerful that Jesus is communicating here. And I believe that this is the essence, the foundation of evangelism. Look at it with me in the context. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be what? Cast out. Don't forget that phrase. That's a powerful phrase. The prince of this world is going to be cast out because the judgment that belongs to this world, your judgment and my judgment that we deserve, is coming now. And it's coming upon who? Who's taking it on himself? Jesus. Jesus is. He's taking our sins, our judgment, our condemnation, our guilt. He's taking it upon himself. And because he's going to do that, he's going to cast out who? What what does the word Satan mean? Accuser. He's going to cast out the accuser. Because the accuser has been accusing us day and night of all of our sins, all of our guilt. all of our... so, so Jesus takes all of that, and by doing that, he can cast out the accuser. You following it so far? And so Jesus says, in the very next phrase, he says, And I, following the thought, and I, if I be what? Lifted up, will draw all unto me. And I thought, that's it right there. Evangelism is all about lifting up Jesus. It's all about lifting up Jesus. Because what I've learned in the years is that there are many ways that you can get people out of Babylon. But there's only one way you can get Babylon out of people. Are you following me? There's many methods and many plans. There's many schemes that we can, we can plan for, we can, we can uh, uh, develop to get people out of Babylon. Oh, we can try this method, we can try that method. But even as, as I became an Adventist, and, and the plans were put in place, and I can look back and say, well, it was wise the way they worked with me and, and what they did. See, I was, I was trying to get into the Adventist church to get my sister out. That was my plan. My sister had been, come involved in this cult. I was, I was a new Christian. I'd fallen in love with Jesus. And I was just so excited. And, and here's my sister telling me that I should be going to church on Saturday. And that I shouldn't be listening to rock and roll music. I had a drum set in my living room. And that I, should be, <clears throat> that I should not be eating meat. I thought, she, that, what in the world has she gotten herself involved in? So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study with these Adventists. And I'm going to find out where they're off. And I'm going to get my sister out. And, of course, their plan was to get me in. 
And people told me, when I became an Adventist, they said, you know, because I have a Catholic background, they said, Catholics make the best Adventists. And it's true. Because Catholics, many Catholics are so devoted to, to doing, to living, to doing what is right, that when they, when they find out the truth, you see, now that, as Catholics, they're doing all the things that they think are right, but they're really wrong. But now they're going to do what's right. Instead of going to church on Sunday, they're going to go to church on Sabbath. Many of these converts simply switch from error to truth. But the method of salvation is the same. The way that they're relating to God is the same. They're just doing the right things. Instead of doing the wrong things, they're doing the right things. But the relationship hasn't changed. There are many ways to get people out of Babylon, but there's only one way to get Babylon out of people. And that is to lift up Jesus. Lift him up higher and higher. And the more you lift up Jesus, the more Babylon comes out. Because Babylon is in its systemic, in its its foundational experience, understanding, it is righteousness by works. It is is ourselves producing a way to to, to appease God, to be accepted of God, to get ourselves saved. And we fall into that. So let's go back now, all the way back to what evangelism looked like in the Old Testament. Evangelism in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve had sinned, and they felt the terror, and I'm reading here from Signs of the Times, December 23, 1886. How did Abel know so well the plan of salvation? Adam taught it to his children and grandchildren. The apostle says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. After Adam had sinned, a feeling of terror seized him. You ever felt that way? You ever felt a feeling of terror? How about this? A constant dread was upon him. Shame and remorse tortured his soul. You ever experienced that? Shame, remorse, terror. It says, in this state of mind, he wished to be as far removed as possible from the presence of God. See, that's our natural state. People say, I'm not good enough to come to church. I don't feel worthy to approach God. This is the natural fallen state of human beings. This is how Adam and Eve felt after the fall. And God pursued them. Notice what it says. But the Lord followed his constant, this constant stricken man. And while he condemned the sin of which Adam had been guilty, he gave him words of gracious promise. And what were these words? I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was the first gospel sermon ever preached to fallen man. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. And what was the enmity? The word itself means hatred. But what is the hatred? Notice what it says. The the context of the verse says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it seems like it's talking about the enmity, but it's really talking about Christ. It shall bruise thy head, excuse me, and thou shall bruise his heel. In other words, Jesus is the enmity. When we fall in love with Jesus, when we see Jesus, when Jesus is lifted up, hatred begins to develop in our hearts towards sin. I remember I came back one day from work, and there was my drum set sitting in the living room. And there was dust gathered on my drums, and I thought, wow, dust on my drums. Can you imagine? 
So I cleaned them all up, and I went over to my, you know, my uh, stereo system, and I went to put in one of my rock and roll cassettes. I don't know if you remember cassettes. <laughs> remember those? No, it's, it's really something, because, see, see, I was raised when eight tracks were going out. I was raised on cassettes. And recently, I ordered a series of uh, meetings with uh, Pastor Bohr on, on the book of Daniel, Daniel 11, and he only, their ministry, they only had them in cassette form. And I didn't think anything of it. I just wanted to, to listen to them, so I ordered the cassettes. And then it took me days to find out a way to listen to them, because I didn't have a cassette player in my house. I didn't have a cassette player in my car. I didn't have a cassette player in my truck. There was no cassette player anywhere. I mean, do you guys have cassette players anymore? You do? And record players, too. Oh, now we're getting antique. So this enmity that, that we're talking about here is really talking about Jesus. Jesus. I came home, and I put this cassette in. Actually, I was, I was looking on this because, you know, unlike a, uh, an audio, like a, a CD, you can't, you don't have all the songs one after another. You have to, you have to choose the side. You're going to side A or side B. Remember that? Side A or side B. Okay, so I was looking, what side am I going to choose? And I came across this song, Van Halen, Running with the Devil. And I thought, I'm not running with the devil. I took the cassette and put it in my uh, case of 100 rock and roll favorite collection, and I threw it in the garbage can. Not because my sister said, you shouldn't listen to rock and roll. The church said, if you don't stop listening to rock and roll, we can't baptize you. My experience was summed up in the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look long in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, the way to get Babylon out of the person is to lift up Jesus. There's a lot of ways we can get people out of Babylon, but there's only one way we can get Babylon out of us. Babylon is a composite of individuals, a composite, we call it in Revelation, a composite beast. It's a beast. And it's a composite beast of individual beasts. Martin Luther said, I fear self more than I fear the Pope and all his bishops. And the focus, the, the way, the means of destroying self is lifting up Christ. So this is the first promise ever given to fallen man. The promise was the star of hope illuminating the dark and dismal future of the race. Adam gladly received and welcomed the assurance of deliverance and diligently instructed his children in the way of the Lord. The promise was presented in close connection with the altar of sacrificial offerings. The altar and the promise stand side by side. One casts clear beams of light upon the other, showing that the justice of an offended God could be appeased only by the death of his beloved son. The bleeding victim consumed on the altar illustrated Adam's teachings, and thus the sight of the eyes deepened the impression made by the hearing of the ear. It was the altar. Abraham, this is still Old Testament. Abraham, wherever he went, wherever he pitched his tent, do you know what he would, what he would build? He would build an altar. You know what that altar symbolized? The cross. It symbolized the cross. It pointed to the Lamb of God. So everywhere Abraham went, he built this altar. Adam and Eve, altar, sacrifice. God, they clothed themselves with fig, skin, with, uh, fig leaves, but God clothed them with animal skins. What animal do you think that was? It was the Lamb. Jesus Christ, clothed with his righteousness, all symbolic of the gospel. 
all pointing to the gospel. That which Cain refused to accept because he wanted to present his works, his own works. And Abel clinging to the Lamb by faith in Jesus. The whole sanctuary service. Everything in the sanctuary pointed to Jesus. Now we know all of these sanctuary symbols represent different aspects of Christian experience. But first and foremost, they represent Jesus. In other words, the whole Old Testament was a type of the plan of salvation that pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to find this very significant when we move beyond this into the book of Revelation. But I want to read this statement to you real quick from Patriarchs and Prophets 128. She says, Wherever he, Adam, pitched his tent, close beside it was set up his altar, calling all within his encampment to the morning and evening sacrifice. Morning and evening sacrifice. Giving Again, our hearts to Jesus, putting our entire dependence upon the blood of the Lamb. Okay, the sanctuary. We have the outer court representing Christ's death, the altar, the labor, his baptism. We have the bread, who is Jesus, the light, who is Jesus. The incense is the righteousness of Christ. We have the law of God, which represents the character of God or his love. Above that is the mercy seat. The whole sanctuary service symbolized the plan of salvation. Now, we're just doing a little bit. This is just a little bit of review. The whole focus, therefore, of the Old Testament was to bring us to Jesus. The cross bridges the gulf between the Old and the New Testament. And as we swing across that gulf, we step right into evangelism in the early church. Look at it here. Evangelism in the New Testament, bottom of page 2, John chapter 1, verse 29. Notice what it says. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, think about that for just a second. John is pointing to Jesus and he's identifying him as the Lamb of God. Did he know what he was talking about when he said that? No, he didn't. He did not fully understand what he was saying. There are times when you can be speaking, and John was speaking under the inspiration of God, and not even know what you were saying. Not even, not even fully comprehend what you were saying. There are times as we continue to preach and teach this message that God has given us when we're going to have those aha moments. You ever had one of those? And you look at a text that you've been preaching and teaching, that you've been sharing for years, and all of a sudden you see something in there that you never saw before. And most of those aha moments are going to come when you're looking for Jesus. What I have realized, I was in Malaysia some years ago, and went to this mall that was so big, it made my head spin. I just wanted, seriously, I just wanted to sit down. I didn't want to go anywhere. It was huge. And this guy was looking for a skin for his phone. And we went to one tech store after another tech store looking for this, and finally I go, I said, can I just sit here? And, and he said, sure. I said, are you sure you're going to be able to find this? Half an hour later, I was sitting, half an hour later, he came, he found it. He knew what he was looking for, and he found it. And I have realized that if you know that Jesus Christ is in the Bible, that he's, that he's in prophecy, that he's in the Old Testament, he's in the New Testament, if you will look for Jesus, you're going to find him. And when you find Jesus, you have the tool, the key, the secret for evangelism. Evangelism is defined as those who bring the good tidings, the glad news. Now, If you take that word and you run it through the New Testament, you're going to find that the word for evangelism is only used three times. 
In Ephesians, you know, God gave some evangelists. Timothy was told to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, there was one guy in Acts that was called an evangelist. That's it. Three times it's used. Only three times. However, the root word for evangelist is used dozens of times, 50 or 60 times in, in, in the New Testament. And that root word actually means to preach the good news of the gospel. And that word is used in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. When it says, I saw another angel having the everlasting gospel to preach unto all the world, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, the reason I say that is because there's something very unique about Revelation 14, 6. I don't know if you've noticed this before. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 has a phrase that is found no other place in the Bible. And that phrase is everlasting gospel. Everlasting gospel. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. You won't find that in the book of Romans. You won't find that anywhere in the Old Testament. The closest you come to it is in the book of Isaiah where it calls it the everlasting salvation. That's the closest you come to it. This phrase is unique because God understood what we would be dealing with concerning evangelism in the end of time. Now, let me just set up a scenario for you and see if you can relate to it. You who have done any kind of witnessing or evangelism. You're doing meetings, you're doing a Bible study, you're sharing with a friend, and you're talking to them in the context of of revelation. You're talking to them about the commandments of God and and commandment keepers and the remnant church. You're introducing them, for, for example, to the law or to the Sabbath. And they will say to you, inevitably, someone has said this to you, well, the law and keeping the law is old covenant. You ever heard that before? We are now under the new covenant. We are now saved by grace. And normally, many times, that will either begin an intense discussion where you're trying to prove to them that they should actually be keeping the law even though they're saved by grace, right? Or it will stop the discussion because you'll just go, whoa, yeah, how do I deal with this? What do I say in this situation? Well, well, here's why God has put that phrase in Revelation 14, 6. See, the idea that they have just shared with you is that in the New Testament, people are saved by grace, but in the Old Testament, people are saved by what? The law. That's what they've just shared with you. So all you need to do is, is mirror that. You just need to share that with them. So, are you saying that in the New Testament, people are saved by grace, but in the Old Testament, people were saved by obedience to the law? Is that what you're saying? And they might even say, well, yes, I guess so. (laughs) And then you have your opportunity to introduce to them what Revelation 14 describes as the everlasting gospel, which means that there was never, ever anyone that was ever saved by obedience to the law. It has always ever been by grace through faith. And you can direct them to Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. No one has ever been saved by obedience to the law, and no one will ever be saved through obedience to the law. And God understood the specific challenge that we would be meeting in the end of time. In the last revelation, he put that phrase in there to help us to deal with that specific challenge. It's the everlasting gospel. It's the everlasting gospel. Cain and Abel understood it because Adam taught it to them. He pointed them to the Lamb. Abraham set up an altar wherever he went. And by the way, those symbols through the sanctuary are also found in the book of Revelation. We'll get to that in just a second. But when you look at this, it's outstanding. 
here's the problem that we have faced at Seventh-day Adventists. And I know this because of my background. See, I was raised a Catholic, and then I became a Christian. I was actually led to Jesus through Calvary Chapel. I was a member of Calvary Chapel Church. I also went to a Pentecostal church. And when I encountered Seventh-day Adventists, again, I told you, my goal was to get my sister out of that church. The reason why I ended up accepting the Sabbath and the law of God is because I had fallen in love with Jesus first. He had become my Savior. He had forgiven me for my sins. And when I saw the truth of God's law and His commandments, it made sense. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, I was in love with Jesus. The problem we have many times is we don't recognize the need to introduce people to Jesus first. Or even for Christians who believe in Jesus but not necessarily, have not necessarily fallen in love with him. If people are, are resisting an understanding of the law of God or accepting the law or the Sabbath or whatever, there's two reasons for it. One is... They may not recognize that it's biblical. I didn't. I thought, who goes to church on Saturday? Sunday is the day. And I was looking for the proof. Or number two is, they're not in love with Jesus. They've, they've lost their first love. And there are millions of Christians who don't have that first love experience. They're just sliding by. They're in the world and in the church. And what do they need? Not condemnation. They need to be reintroduced to Jesus. They need Jesus lifted up. This was the condition of the Jewish church in the days of the apostles. Look at the verses with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The apostles are doing evangelism. This is basic, foundational evangelism. No tricks, nothing, you know, uh, covert. It's just up, straight up evangelism. Acts 2, 23. Him talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and what? Put to death. Going on, Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 4.10, Let it be known to all, to you all and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, by him, this man that stands here before you whole. 1 Corinthians 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Baptism is into Christ. It's not into a church. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24, we preach Christ crucified. The Jews are stumbling block, the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. On and on and on. Every single verse, all through the New Testament early church, they were lifting up Jesus, they were lifting up Jesus, they were lifting up Jesus, they were pointing to Jesus. They were identifying Christ as the one who had been crucified by them. And then, in Acts 17, 2-6, Paul is explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he goes on to, to preach a powerful sermon. And then there's this big division taking place. And the rulers of the synagogue go after Paul, can't find him, drag Jason out. And they complain to the multitude, to the mob. And they say, these people have turned the world upside down. What were they doing to turn the world upside down? What was happening? When I went to Pakistan, I began to preach the first night. There were about 400 people there, which was really a surprise, but it was powerful. 
And, and I, I began, it was a 10-day series, and I began to preach the first night, and in every sermon, I was just lifting up Christ. I started with John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, or 30, 30, 31, and just began lifting up Christ. And the next night, there were 800 people there. The next night, there were 1,200 people there. The next night, there were 1,600 people there. The next night, there were 2,000 people there. The, by the time the series was over, there were 4,000 people there. They couldn't, there was no more room for any more people. I had invitations to go to the Church of Pakistan, which is like the Anglican Church, to a Methodist Church, to Catholic Church. I mean, they wanted me to come back and do a whole series on Daniel and Revelation for pastors. I went back there two more times. Ty went there. Herb Montgomery went there, who was working with us at the time. Steve Wahlberg went there, all doing follow-up, all the way up until 9-11. I was even planning on going back there just before 9-11 took place. I was making plans to go back to Pakistan. The doors were opening everywhere. The conference came to us, and they said, we have never had them, because in Pakistan, because of the Muslim oppression, because of the persecution, all the churches are together. They, they do their seminars together. They, 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 there's a unity there because of the, the persecution that they all receive from the Muslims. But they had always excluded the Adventists because we were so peculiar in our focus. And, and here comes this evangelist from America, and he's talking about Jesus. And these, these Christian churches, these other denominations, they can't, they don't, they, they've never heard this before. And the conference guys came to me and they said, this has never happened before. We've never had these doors open like this to all these other churches. And finally, they actually, we actually invited this guy. His name was Ezekiel Zarosh. He came from Pakistan back to the States to 3ABN. They wanted to interview him. Danny and Linda wanted to interview him. So, so I'm going back here in history. But they, they, he came there and they were interviewing him on 3ABN. I was there with him and they asked him this question. They said, why would, because he was a Pentecostal. He had 120 Pentecostal pastors under him, and he was the one that organized the series uh, seminar for, on Daniel Revelation for all these pastors. There were over 300 pastors from different denominations at the series. There was a Catholic priest there. There were missionaries from other countries there. And so they asked him this question. They say, why would you invite an Adventist to preach Daniel and Revelation to your Pentecostal pastors? And he said, well... He said, I was really nervous about this, but he said, the reason why is because he kept lifting up Christ. He said, all of my pastors were scared of the book of Revelation. But then they began to see that Jesus is central in the book of Revelation. They'd never seen that before. And, and it changed the whole way of looking at the book of Revelation. I believe that God has given us the most powerful tool for evangelism on the planet today in the book of Revelation. I believe that we have something here and an insight to it that no other denomination has. And I'm, I want to share this with you, not just from what I'm thinking, but from the information God has given us. Part three of this is, is entitled Evangelism in 1888. And I'm just going to share with you, I was thinking about, in preparation for these meetings, I was thinking, what would be the best way to summarize the whole entire meeting? What, what is the message that I want to communicate to all of you? The message that is really fired up my own heart over the last 26 or 7 years that I've been involved in ministry and evangelism. And it has to be right here in this statement from Testimonies to Ministers. So I'm going to read most of it to you because it's so powerful. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through elders Wagoner and Jones. You heard of those guys? This message was to bring more prominently before the world Okay, so this is evangelism, all right? Before the world, the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice of the sins of the world. So 
The message that Jones and Wang were bringing to the church was a message for us to understand and accept so that we could bring Jesus to the world, so we could uplift Jesus. Now, I want to pause there for just a second, and I want to remind you of my own thinking and the thinking of many of us, perhaps. We as an Adventist, I as an Adventist thought, well, I, the, the world, the other churches especially, they already know about Jesus. They already understand about Jesus. We have a unique message, and our unique message points to the sanctuary and the 2300 days and 1844 and the state of the dead and, and hellfire and the Sabbath and the sanctuary. Why would we want to spend all this time emphasizing what they already know? You see, that was my thinking. But what I found is that Jesus is the only way to get Babylon out of people. You can get a lot of people out of Babylon, but you can't get Babylon out of people unless Jesus is lifted up. And not only do they need Jesus, but we need Jesus. And it's amazing, the strategy of the devil, to get us separated from Christ by getting us focused on all of the doctrines that are unique to us, separating us from the source and the power of our strength thinking that we can make it through, that we can do this work because of our understanding of truth without Jesus. It's impossible. And so God was very uh, specific with us in 1888 with this message. This is a summary of the message going on. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. I want to pause there for just a second. This is my experience. I accepted Christ as my Savior. He forgave my sins. I was on fire for Him. I didn't know an Adventist. I didn't know anything about the Sabbath. But I accepted Christ as my Savior. And when I came in contact with the truth, and it took a number of months. My sister was baptized in July. I was baptized in November. So July was when I started studying with the Adventists to get my sister out of the church. Actually, it was June. June, July, August, September, October, November. About five months. But when I saw this, you see, I'd already accepted Jesus, and I saw all of these truths, I embraced them. See, it was made manifest in my experience. So the, the, the focus on Jesus, lifting up Jesus, doesn't do away with the law. Not at all. It actually is the only way that we end up having the law written in our hearts. We must, it is vital for us. Well, notice what the statement goes on to say. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, to his merits, to his changeless love for who? Seventh-day Adventists? No, for the human family. See, Jesus, if we can understand Jesus' changeless love for the whole human family, then we're just beginning to recognize his changeless love for us who want to follow him, who are striving to follow him in our wretchedness and our imperfection, who, who desire to be his disciples. It directed them to look to his merits, his changeless love for the human family, all powers given to his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. This is the message that God wants us to give to the world. Okay, tell me, what is the message that God wants us to give to the world? Yeah, Jesus is the message. And what's, what's powerful is Adventists have a unique understanding of Jesus. Did you know that? 
We have a unique understanding of the cross. Because when an evangelical preaches on the cross, their focus is on the physical pain that Jesus suffered. Oh, he suffered a lot, you know, the nails or whatever. I went to the Philippines in 1995 during Easter, and I watched a parade. And in this parade, there were people that were, you know, flogging their backs and, you know, different things they were doing to, you know, find merit with Christ. And the next day, I opened up this paper. And in this paper, it had a picture of this guy that had been crucified. Literal nails in his feet and in his hands for the 15th year in a row. Every single year, he gets crucified. Every single year trying to earn the merit of God. Now, the question that, that I'd ask you is, does crucifixion kill you? Obviously, it didn't kill him, did it? No. The physical pain that Jesus suffered on the cross didn't kill him. We have to go beyond. We have to understand that that physical suffering was a revelation to our dull senses of the pain the mental agony that Christ experienced on Calvary. The only way you can truly understand the cross is when we recognize it in the context of the state of the dead, the second death. All of the truths that we hold dear actually give us a unique picture of Jesus, of what he suffered, of what he experienced for us. We have a unique take on the gospel, the everlasting gospel to share with the world. No one else has this understanding. No one else has this message to share. So, the up of the Savior. I'm going to go down to the next bolded uh, part of this uh, statement because, because of time. The message of the gospel of His grace was to be given to the church in clear, distinct lines that the world should no longer say, follow me on this, that Seventh-day Adventists talk the law the law, but do not teach or believe Christ. God gave us a message in 1888 that was going to cause the world to no longer say, you Adventists, you're just always talking about the law and the Sabbath and the law and the Sabbath, and you don't talk about Jesus very much. That's what what the 1888 message was for. That was part of the reason why God gave it to us. Do you, do you realize that it is possible, not, not even possible if you're an evangelist, it is actually vital for us to lift up Jesus in every single sermon? To just always, always have the focus on Jesus. You know, the Bible says in Colossians chapter... Let's see, what is it? It says, let your speech... Colossians 4 and verse 6, let your speech, this is talking about how you communicate the gospel, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Now, I'm I'm Irish on my mother's side. My favorite food for breakfast is potatoes. I love potatoes. My wife's Hispanic, she loves beans. I'm Irish, I love potatoes. Any morning, you want to fix me breakfast, hash brown potatoes, I'm good. And, of course, a little bit of salt. If you come to my house, you're going to have potatoes for breakfast if I'm cooking. But what would you think if you came to my house and I gave you a plate filled with salt and I sprinkled on a few potatoes? What would you think of that? What would you think of having potatoes without any salt at all? It's kind of bland, isn't it? 
See, God is telling us that the way we communicate this message needs to be, the, plate, the entree needs to be Jesus. And then we need to make sure we put the salt on there because the world is bland with iniquity and sin. I mean, it's everywhere. And so we've got to have a little salt on there. The problem is, is when we give people the salt and then we sprinkle on a few potatoes, oh, Jesus loves you. We give a whole discourse about who knows what. Maybe it's the beast. We're talking about the beast now. And at the end, we tell people how Jesus loves them. When the central focus of every discourse is to be about Jesus. And you might say, that's impossible. That's what I said when I first read those statements. That's impossible. How can you do that? How can you always be lifting up Jesus? Well, those things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Notice what it says in the very last paragraph. Unless he makes it his life business to uplift, to behold the uplifted Savior by faith, and to accept his merits, which it is, it is his privilege to claim, the sinner can no more be saved than Peter could walk upon water unless he kept his eyes fixed steadily upon Jesus. For years, the church has been looking to man, expecting much from man, and not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore, God gave to his servants a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. Now, this is all history. This is all history. And some of us know it. Some of us may not know it. It's history from the Old Testament. It's history from the early church. It's history from 1888. Here's some history from 1895. In 1895, Ellen White was in Australia. Not because God led her there, because that's where the brethren wanted her to go, because all she was talking about was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they were afraid that she had been indoctrinated by this Wagner and Jones stuff, you know. Prescott had been. He was all over it. He was so excited about this 1888 message that Jones and Wagner were preaching that he went over to Australia to preach a series of messages, and Ellen White was sitting in those meetings. Armadale, Australia, 1895. This is how Ellen White described this evangelist's experience. This is what she said about it. She said, It was instruction as precious as gold. It was a feast of precious things. The truth in new lines. The truth, clear, simple. In, the truth in clear and simple style, yet rich in nourishment. Burning words of truth, as we heard in 1844. A glorious and convincing light. Hardly a discourse that could be called a doctrinal sermon. In every sermon, Christ is preached. She said, it was exalting Jesus higher and yet higher, nothing but the plain gospel. Here's the theme she listed that Prescott presented. Christ's preexistence, his personal dignity, his work as creator, his relation to the Sabbath, his relation to man as a source of life, his holy law uplifted, his presence and work in the hearts of men, his coming the second time in glory and power. Here's what she said was the reaction of unbelievers. They were deeply interested. They turned pale and said, this man is inspired. They listened as if spellbound. They sat with their eyes riveted in amazement, saying, all the words are precious, saying, I have never attended meetings where Christ was more manifestly taught and exalted. They begged a copy of the discourses. L. White sent a copy of the discourses. Her secretary wrote them out in shorthand back to America to the Review and Herald. She encouraged them to be printed, and they were lost. Never printed, just more of that Jones and Wagner stuff, and lost sight of until recently. These discourses were found, discovered by Fred Bischoff. He gave an earlier seminar here, 
and he put them all together with all of Ellen White's comments, and they are available now. Would you like to read a copy of these, these discourses? They're available. Go to lbm.org. You can, they're going to be on our website. They're also going to be available with, uh, from Fred. If you know Fred, if you don't, I can get you a copy of these directly if you email me at james at lbm.org. So look at, would you like to read more completely what Ellen White said of this amazing advantageous experience and beg a copy of the discourses? You may just respond as Ellen White did, and this is what she said. How can Seventh-day Adventists preach any other doctrine? Now, this was her plan. Take those discourses that Prescott gave, send them back to the states, and have them typed out as an outline for all of our evangelists. All of our evangelists should be trained to do evangelism the way that these meetings were just given. And they were lost. They were lost. You know, it is late. It is late. But my potatoes are sprouting. I'm going to be watering them every day, and I believe God is going to bless. It is late, but it's not too late. God wants us. It's a miracle of God, I think, that these sermons have been found, and that they're available for us, and that we can read them. And I wept when I read these sermons the first time. They are powerful. And I remember sharing them with an evangelist, and you know what he said to me? Won't work today. See, we have to choose between methods that are calculated to get people out of Babylon or a method that God has given us to get Babylon out of people. I hope you're following me. Because Paul understood. He committed himself to it. He said, I am determined not to know anything but Jesus Christ and crucified. I know that there's other ways to do this. There's other ways to convince people. But there's only one way that comes with the power of God. He said, God did not send me to baptize people. He didn't. Did, did Paul baptize people? Did he baptize people? He did. Actually, he, he said, I baptize more than any of you. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. But he says, God didn't send me to baptize people. See, baptism is a consequence of preaching the gospel. When you preach the gospel, people end up being baptized. It's an amazing thing. <laughs> but the focus of evangelism is not baptizing people. And the, the, the success of an evangelistic crusade is not in how many people were baptized. It's whether Christ was preached in every discourse. Okay, we're in the book of Revelation now. This is it. This is where we are. All of this that we've said so far, from Genesis all the way down through 1888, 1895, the New Testament church, all of this, all of that history brings us right down to the book of Revelation. The last revelation is going to go forth. And God has written this book. He has put this book together in a specific way. It's in an order. God wrote it in a certain way. You know... What's really interesting, well, let's, let me just go through this outline just so that I don't miss anything. But I'm just going to go to this statement by Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther changed his perspective on the book of Revelation over time. In the preface, pre- preface to his German translation of Revelation that he composed in 1522, he said that he did not consider the book prophetic or apostolic, since Christ is neither taught nor known in it, quote-unquote. Martin Luther had a problem with Revelation and with the book of James. He just didn't think they should be part of the canon. He says, book of Revelation, Christ isn't known in it, Christ isn't taught in it, it's not apostolic, it's not inspired, get it out of here. Okay, that's what he said in 1522. But in the completely new preface that he composed in 1530, eight years later, he reversed his position and he concluded that Christ was central to 
the book. He concluded, as we see here in the book, that through and beyond all the plagues and the beasts and the evil angels, Christ is nonetheless with the saints, wins the final victory for God's people. Martin Luther struggled with the book of Revelation. took him eight years to figure it out. What about you? Everywhere I go, people in evangelism, people say to me, I'm scared of the book of Revelation, or I don't understand the book of Revelation, or I don't see, I'm, I don't even want to go into the book. Someone said to me one time, they said, I read my Bible diligently, dutifully, through, and I stop at the book of Revelation. And then I go back and I read it again, and I stop at the book of Revelation. And I was sharing that with, with, uh, with a group of people in, in Idaho, southern Idaho, and, and I said, people, some people are scared to believe the book of Revelation. And, and this lady came up to answer, and she said, when you said that, my son pulled, tagged, pulled on my elbow, and he said, Mom, he's talking about you. How did he know that? <laughs> my wife was raised in Adventist, and she traces her first nightmares to her first Revelation seminar. We talk about end-time events, you know, all the things that are going to happen in the end of time. And it just gave her nightmares, all these end-time events. You know, even if you know all of the truth about the end-time events and you don't know Jesus, what good is it going to do? God has put the book of Revelation together in such a way that, first of all, we would encounter Jesus. Notice this, it's really powerful. And by the way, here it is. If you do a word count in Revelation, and my wife, I was telling my wife about this, and she said, you did a word count in Revelation? Whatever, whatever inspired you to do that? And I said, I was just curious. I was just curious. Where is the middle of the book? What's the middle of the book of Revelation? So I went to the King James. I I took the whole uh, book of Revelation, put it in a word file, did a word count. It was really easy, 12,455 words, okay? Then I said, okay, halfway through. Where where is it going to take me halfway through? And by the way, it's not until you get 5,591 words through the book of Revelation that you even encounter a beast. That's almost halfway through the book before you even encounter a beast. You get to the middle of the book of Revelation, and you know where you are? You're in Revelation 12 and verse 9. Here it is. This is halfway through the book. And the great dragon was, that's halfway through, and the next two words are, cast out. The center of the book of Revelation tells us the dragon was cast out. Now, what was the verse we started with? John chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. What does it say? I, if I be lifted out, will... Yeah, but what was, the, what was verse 30? Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be what? Cast out. See, the center of the book of Revelation is giving us the same message that Jesus was giving us in John 12. I'm going to be lifted up. That's evangelism. Lift up Jesus. And when Jesus is lifted up, who is the author of Babylon? Who is the one that gives Babylon its power and its seat and its authority? It's the dragon. The only way to get Babylon out of people is to lift up Jesus. So this is the center of the book. Now, Going back to the beginning, here's another interesting uh, thought. The beast in the book of Revelation is mentioned 26 times, the bad ones. There's a few there that are good beasts, you know, the ones before the throne. The lamb is mentioned 29 times. Now, I only say that because when we do evangelism, normally, our emphasis in the book of Revelation is on what? The beasts. But the beasts aren't the theme of the book of Revelation. Who's the theme of the book of Revelation? The Lamb. We know this because any good book introduces its theme in the introduction. And there's no beast in the introduction of Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 1 says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, God has given us, I, I mean, I'm so excited about this. I'm so stoked about this. I wish we had hours to talk about it. I would just love to take you on a journey through the book of Revelation. You find what you're looking for, and you're going to find Jesus all through the book of Revelation. You're going to find the cross all through the book of Revelation. It is no accident that the word lamb is used in the book of Revelation because when it's introduced in Revelation chapter 5, it's introduced as the lamb slain in the midst of the throne, and that's pointing us to the cross. So every time you see that word lamb, it's actually cross, 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 cross. The cross is the theme of the book of Revelation. The cross is what brings down the dragon and the beast and his image. All the world will follow except those who are written in the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's even central to Revelation 13. But God, that's what God, this is what God begins with, the revelation of Jesus. Okay, quick overview. First message in Revelation. What is the first thing that God wants us to know in the book of Revelation? First of all, he says, this is a revelation from Jesus. It's given to his angel, signified to the churches, to John, etc. And then he says, a blessing, blessing, blessing on those who read here and keep those things. And then he says, from him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The first message of Revelation is the message of God's love. See, that's the first thing he wants us to know. He wants to know that he loves us and that he's washed us. He's taken care of the sin problem. He's done it. He's accomplished it. Okay, now, follow that idea to the very first vision of the book of Revelation. What is the first thing that John sees in vision? He goes into vision, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and what does he see? He hears this voice, like a trumpet, he turns, and who does he see? Jesus. Okay, evangelism now. Think evangelism. What is the first thing that God wants us to communicate in evangelism? The love of Christ. What is the first thing we need to focus people to, direct them to? When they walk into our evangelism meetings, when they get a flyer in the mail, what is it that we want them to see? Jesus. Not the beast. We want them to see Jesus. Because Jesus said, if I be what? Lifted up. We're lifting up the beast. We need to be lifting up Christ. We need to be lifting up Jesus. Now, there are people who are curious about the beast. There are people who are curious about the mark of the beast. We're not going to leave that out. But... All the knowledge that we can give them is not going to better their situation. It's going to make them wor- it's going to make their situation worse unless we introduce them to Jesus. Because knowing more about all the bad and terrible things that are going to happen is not good news. It's not evangelism. What is an evangelist again? A bringer of good tidings, a bringer of good news. It's not good news. But introducing them to Jesus is. You introduce people to Jesus. You tell them to focus on Jesus. Now, here's something that's really powerful. When you look at the, the, the way the book of Revelation is laid out, it's in harmony with what Paul defines in 1 Corinthians 15 as the principles of the gospel. He says the gospel, first and foremost, is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just read it to you real quick, just in case. Sometimes people ask me, what is the everlasting gospel? Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive, which you also stand by, which you, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you a first importance. Now, I believe that this is the gospel. The entire Bible is the gospel. But the first importance, the foundation of that gospel, where do we start with the gospel? Paul says, I delivered to you which, that which was of first importance, which I also received, that Christ 
died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the foundation of the gospel. Okay, is that in the book of Revelation? Is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus foundational in the book of Revelation? Well, here's what's interesting. Revelation's first vision of the seven churches. Jesus among the candlesticks. Those candlesticks represent churches. God is with us. Jesus is pictured as incarnate with his people, with his church, okay? That's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus. Then you move to the seals. When you go to the seals, you have this book in the right hand of him that sits on the throne. No man can open it, you know, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. And then John begins to weep, and the elder says, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And he, point, he turns to look for this line, and he sees what? The lamb as it had been slain. That's the cross. So you have the incarnation of Jesus Christ with us, with the churches. Then you have the lamb slain the cross. Then you go to the seven trumpets. Do you know how the seven trumpets is introduced? It's introduced in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 2 as this angel is pictured, symbolic of Christ and his mediatorial work. It says in verse 2, no, verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. Now again, this is sanctuary symbolism, and it's rich, there's a lot here. But let me just basically break it down for you. There are two altars in, this, in these verses. There's one altar from which all this incense is gathered, and then there's a second altar where this incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. The second altar is called the golden altar. Anyone know where that altar was? Okay, it was in the holy place, which tells us, by the way, that the seven trumpets can't be future. future you can't put them in the future because they begin. the vision begins in the holy place. That's pre-1844. Think about that. So you have this golden altar that is the place where the prayers are mingled with the incense. Now, go back now to the altar where he got the incense from. Was there another altar in the sanctuary? Yeah, there was an altar in the, in the courtyard. And that was the altar where the lambs were what? And that pointed to the cross. Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, 10 through 12, we have an altar that they have no right to eat of, which served the literal sanctuary service. Because Jesus, just like those, those animals were taken outside the camp, so Jesus suffered outside the gate. That altar in the courtyard represents the cross. Here's the picture. Jesus is now taking lamb slain in the midst of the throne. He's taking his sacrifice up the cross of Calvary. He's taking the merit of that sacrifice, his incense, and he's taking it into the holy place, into the heavenly sanctuary, and he's mingling it there with the prayers, with our prayers. So you have a picture in Revelation 8 of the beginning of the seven trumpets. You have a picture there of the mediation of Christ. So now look at the big picture here. Seven churches, the incarnation of Christ. Seven seals, the crucifixion of Christ. Seven trumpets, the mediation of Christ. The life, the death, and the intercession of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the foundation of the gospel that God is longing for us to communicate with the world. Now, this is what I found. If you follow the sanctuary symbolism through the book of Revelation, you are going to be able to preach the gospel in Revelation chapters 1 all the way through 11 and saturate people in that gospel truth. And by the way, if you'd like PowerPoint on this and outlines on this, we have them at Lightbearers. Free of charge, you can download them. Before you ever mention commandment keeping, if you will follow the outline of evangelism in the book of Revelation, you will not mention commandment keeping until you get to Revelation chapter 12. The problem is, many times, we jump. 
to Revelation 12 and 13 and 4. We jump right into that. And we have not even covered any of Revelation 1 through 11. But if we'll follow the outline, here's what's going to happen. We're going to introduce people to Jesus, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his intercession in the heavenly sanctuary. We're going to thoroughly cover all of the subjects in the first half of the book of Revelation. Before we get to the second half, you're going to find in the book of Revelation that there is never a mention of commandment keeping in Revelation 1 through 11. Check it out. There's no place ever mentioned in Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 of anyone who keeps the commandments of God. You know why? Because the Bible tells us that the only way we're going to keep God's commandments is if we love Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then the Bible tells us the reason we love Him is because He first loved us. So we have to introduce people, first of all, to the love of Christ. Their hearts have to be saturated with a picture of their merciful high priest who sacrificed himself for them and is with them in spite of their defects. You know, sometimes when we look at Jesus among the churches, okay, how many churches are there? Seven. By the way, there's seven sets of seven in the book of Revelation. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven angels with messages, seven kings, and seven last plagues. Seven sets of seven. God, so it's not literally seven churches, but it's symbolic of all of God's people. Now, when you look at those churches, they've got some problems. Have you noticed that? Actually, there's only two churches that are without fault. Smyrna and Philadelphia. All the rest of them are in bad shape. In fact, Laodicea, the one that represents us, is really in bad shape. It's so bad that God says, you make me sick, I want to throw up. Okay. Is God with us in that condition? Yeah, that's the, that's the picture. Jesus, Jesus isn't standing with Philadelphia and Smyrna over here. You know, he's standing over here with Philadelphia, and he says, okay, when you other five churches, when you receive my rebuke and get your act together, you can join us over here. No, see, the picture that Jesus is giving is I'm with you. Even though you make me sick, I love you. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I love you. See, that's the picture that we want people, that we want to see, and we want people to see as we open up the book of Revelation. I've loved you. I've washed you from my sins and my blood. Don't doubt that I love you. I'm with you. I know you've got problems. But I want you to see that I'm with you before I tell you the problems that you have. Do people know that you love them before you tell them the problems that you have or that they have or any problems or tell them anything? Love comes first. It prepares the way for everything else. That's how the book of Revelation is laid out. That's how it's designed. So that by the time you get to Revelation chapter 12, you have a people, Revelation 12.1, who are clothed with the sun and standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars on their head. Now that picture of that woman is a picture of God's people. They're clothed with the sun. That's Malachi 4.2, the righteousness of Jesus. They're standing on the word of God, the moon, the lesser light. The word is a light to my path and a, and a lamp to my feet. And they, are, they have the 12 stars. They're part of an organized body. 12 is, is God's number for his organized church, his organized people, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Then it says in Revelation 12, 11, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and don't love their lives unto death. And then it says in Revelation 12, 17, and they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus or the testimony of Jesus. See, verse 17 comes after verse 11, comes after verse 1 of Revelation 12. And Revelation 12, 1 is the summation of Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Are you following me? This is evangelism. The book of Revelation has given us this method of evangelism. Don't skip past the first chapters. They occupy a powerful place in evangelism. They introduce people to Jesus. 
introduce people to Jesus. By the way, we have an outline uh, of 10 studies on the book of Revelation just for, they're called Preloads of Hope. And they're free at the ASI at our booth. If you, if you get by there, just take a set of them. There's 10 of them. They're free right here. I mean, you paid a lot of money to get here, so you know, the least we can do is give you a free set, right? And they're just focusing on the gospel in Revelation. They're a great introduction or summary for anyone who's been through an evangelistic series. Just introduce them to Jesus and his love. Focusing on that. And then, of course, the rest follows. So, we've got five minutes left. I just want you to look at these statements. Uh, we weren't able to follow everything, but Testimonies to Ministers 118. Let Daniel speak, let Revelation speak, and tell what is truth. But whatever phase of the subject is presented, lift up who? Jesus. Whatever phase. Now, the hardest sermon that I ever gave or ever give following this counsel is the Mark of the Beast. But it works. It actually does. It's, it's really profound when you think about how powerful it is to lift up Jesus Christ when you preach the mark of the beast. Let Daniel speak, let Revelation speak. Testimonies 118. Evangelism 196. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. Am I saying that we shouldn't do that? Have you been hearing that, that I've been saying we shouldn't teach prophecy? No. Prophecy is the foundation, right? Revelation is our evangelistic manual, okay? But notice what it says. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation should be carefully studied in connection with them, the words, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. See, Ellen White said that we, when we better understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, so we haven't had a full understanding of these books. We need a better understanding. We need an understanding that incorporates Christ as the center. And going on, one more statement here. Actually, three more. Let us diligently study the gospel that Christ came in person to present to John on the Isle of Patmos, the gospel that is termed the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I call the book of Revelation the fifth gospel of the Bible. You know why? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are gospels because they talk about Jesus. So does Revelation. The book of Revelation is not about the beast. The beast is there. The, the mark of the beast is there. But the, the primary theme of Revelation is Jesus. Okay? Revelation churches, the message is you need to overcome. You need to overcome. And we realize, wow, we need to overcome. And how many of us are actually accomplishing that? The deeper we go, the closer we get to Jesus, the more our repentance deepens. We say, wow, there's things I never noticed before. Have you seen that? And so then we get to Revelation seals. And you see, no man in heaven, no man in earth, no man under the earth can take the book. The book actually represents the title deed to this earth. It represents the history of all of us, nations, everyone. And we are all summarized by falling short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. No one can alter that destiny. And so John is weeping and then he says, wait, the lamb. And it says, the lamb has what? What's the word? Prevail. Do you know what that word is in the original Greek? Overcome. Same word, overcome. See, we can't overcome, but we have to overcome. But the Lamb is overcome. Then you go to Revelation 6. The white horse represents Christ. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. Actually, the horse itself represents us. The white horse rider is Jesus. Jesus and the horse unite. We're the horse. He's the rider. He wants to take the reins of our lives. He wants to direct us to go forth conquering and to conquer. That word conquering and to conquer, same word, overcome. Here's the picture that Revelation is introducing us to. We need to overcome. But we can't. But Jesus has overcome. And as we unite with him, we will overcome. See, He is the way we go forth, conquering and to conquer. He is the overcomer. We unite with him. He directs us in that way. 
The gospel is saturated in the book of Revelation. It's all through the book of Revelation. It's everywhere you turn is the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. And we have been sidetracked to talk about the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast, the beast. And people are getting nightmares out of all this end time stuff and all this end time focus without Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand. We need to understand what's coming. Certainly we do. But only in the context, again, of Jesus. Let us diligently study the gospel that Christ came in person to present to John the Isle of Patmos. Let every God-fearing teacher consider how most clearly to comprehend and present the, the gospel our Savior came to present uh, in person to make known to his servant John, the revelation of Jesus. And finally, and this one is so powerful, great truths have lain unheeded since the day of Pentecost, and they are to shine forth from God's word in their native purity. To those who truly love God, the Holy Spirit will reveal truths that have faded from the mind, and will also reveal truths that are entirely new. Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring forth, will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation, truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now notice this last sentence. They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. Isn't that an incredible statement? The books of Daniel and Revelation have truths in them that are entirely new, that are going to start into action forces that cannot be repressed. Powerful. I'd love to share with you another article. I'm just going to give you the reference for it. It's a summary of end-time events in the context of righteousness by faith. It's a December, or excuse me, a Review and Herald article, December 23, 1890. Look it up, read the whole thing. December 23, 1890. It's a Review and Herald extra that was written by Ellen White on Jones and Wagner, the message, it describes exactly how the work is going to close. It tells about how people in the church are going to resist this message and this emphasis on Christ our righteousness. They're going to be passed by. God is going to use people from humble walks of life who simply accept it and preach it. They're going to lift up Jesus, lift up Jesus, lift up Jesus. One message will swallow up all of this Christ our righteousness. Satan will be infuriated. He will be so upset. He's going to bring great persecution against those who are doing this. But other people in other faiths are going to look on and say, wow, they have the spirit of Christ. And they're going to join us. And the work is going to close up. And she says it's all about Jesus, Jesus, just taking Jesus to the world, Jesus to the world, Jesus to the world. People are going to realize Adventists actually believe in Jesus. There's a quick summary or a quiz on the back of this outline. There's also a book that's being made available by Bob Kent, a friend of mine, out there on the table just as you go out. It's kinda, it kind of adds to what we've been talking about, Making Christ the Sentence, Christ Our Righteousness by Bill Lehman, who's a pastor who's passed away, but really got this, figured it out, and, and put it together in a series of sermons at the uh, Hill Church in Loma Linda years ago. That book is free of charge. Bob is making it available for everyone for free. And if there are some extra handouts, I don't know if there's any left over, but if you didn't get one, you can get them from our website. They're all gone. It's late. It is late. But my potatoes are planted. And I'm going to be watering them every day. And I mean every day because I have an automatic, 30-minute automatic watering system hooked up to my hose. So every 24 hours, that thing goes on for 30 minutes. Friends, we need to water. We need the water of life to water our hearts. Jesus needs to be saturating our hearts and our minds, looking to Jesus, lifting up Jesus, focusing on Jesus every chance we get. We need to allow the gospel of Revelation to become the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that gospel to go forth from our our mouths, our hearts, everything. We need to stop talking about the beast so much and start talking about Jesus much more. Because Jesus is the only way to get the beast 
out of the individual, to get Babylon out of the person, lift up Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time together, for each one that's here, for the opportunity that we've had to sit at the feet of Jesus, to look from Genesis to Revelation at the work of evangelism and and what it means, the, the, the bringer of good tidings, and how you have directed us to lift you up. In John chapter 12 in Revelation, we see that the devil is cast out. This is the central point in the book of Revelation. It is a theme that you long for us to share, that the devil is to be cast out of our hearts, of our lives, and eventually of this world. Thank you for this wonderful reminder of what you've accomplished for us in Calvary. Please help us to to remind, to share with others these good tidings, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.